Turn with me again, please, to John's Gospel. John's Gospel, chapter 14. Tonight I'd like to speak to you on the words of verse 2 and verse 3. John's Gospel chapter 14, verse 2 and verse 3. Jesus said, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Let's please unite our hearts together in prayer. Heavenly Father and eternal God, we thank thee this evening for the word of the Lord that we're gathered around. <clears throat> we thank thee that you haven't left us without a chart or a compass to see us across the sea of life. And we thank thee for this precious holy book. We thank thee for the words of Christ tonight in John 14 as we would meditate upon them Lord open our hearts to what they have to say open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from out of thy truth this very evening I pray for the help of God the Holy Spirit and I pray that thou the Spirit of God will touch these lips of clay and touch the ears that hear the words that have to be proclaimed and we pray that thou wilt bless them to thy glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So think of these very famous opening words of John's Gospel, chapter 14. My heart was really touched as I heard them read in the past week. We ought not ever to question the power that's even in the reading of the word of God. The Archbishop of Canterbury read these words as the Queen's coffin came to uh, lay in state in the Great Westminster Hall. And I was really blessed through them. And I suppose what picked up my ears especially to them was that he was reading out of the authorised version of the Scriptures, which is very unusual in this day and age. But then we know that Her Majesty loved the authorised version of the Scriptures and that there are display copies that were presented to her by the Trinitarian Bible Society in her palaces. She revered it so much. Trouble of heart is not a new experience, of course, for God's people. The ancient patriarch Job, he was a man who knew all about trouble of heart, and he said about mankind that man that is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. And men have always known what trouble is. And men have always known what it is to be troubled in heart and in their soul. And the early disciples were no different. If they had been perfect men, they wouldn't have known trouble of heart. But they were just men, like we are this evening. They had trouble of heart. And the Lord Jesus had occasion to speak words to soothe their troubled heart. And down through the years, 
this passage of Scripture, John 14, these opening six verses, I think have been read at countless funerals, countless wakes, countless occasions where death has come as the visitor and taken away loved ones. And these words have been read which soothed the hearts of others before and have brought comfort and healing to our own lives again. Of course, they form part of what is known as the Paschal Discourse, John 14 to 16. Remember, this was the address that the Lord Jesus gave his disciples after he had met with them in the upper room. In that upper room discourse, he told them in John's Gospel, chapter 13, 31 to 33, that he had to leave them. And of course, they were distraught at his announcement and, and Peter uh, impetuously, but uh, characteristically, he said that he would go with the Lord. But not even the beloved disciple could go where Jesus was destined to go and do what Jesus had to do. And the disciples feared, of course, when he made this announcement that he would go and never come back or he would go and they would never see him again. But the Lord Jesus, he understood their troubled thoughts even before those disciples could even articulate those troubled thoughts. For he knew what trouble of soul was himself. The Lord Jesus knew what trouble of soul was himself. In those previous chapters in John's Gospel, we read in John eleven thirty three when the Lord Jesus went to the funeral of his beloved friend Lazarus. We read, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping, the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. It's not an amazing verse in and of itself that the Lord of glory groaned in his spirit and was troubled. He was troubled at the grief and the death that had befallen uh, the home of Lazarus. In John 12, 27, Jesus said, Now is my soul troubled. His very soul was troubled. And then in John 13, 21, we, we read again, He was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Uh, these men who had been with him for some three years, he looked round about them and he knew who the traitor was. He knew who would betray him. But nonetheless, it was a troublesome thought to him that somebody could have been with him and shared the most intimate moments with him and the rest of the disciples and he was about to do the betrayal that would be infamous in all of history. So what was the antidote that Jesus prescribed for the troubles of the hearts of the disciples? Well, he soothed their troubled hearts by talking to them about heaven. I think that's very wonderful. He didn't tell them that it would be all right down here and they never would have any more troubles or they never would have any more battles. Because he knew that would not be the case. He knew they would have conflict. He knew they would have sorrow. He knew that many of them would lay down their lives for him. In fact, all of them would lay down their lives for him. And so he talked to them about heaven. And in John's Gospel, chapter 14, we have one of the most beautiful descriptions in all of the Bible about heaven. It is referenced some 19 times in John's Gospel in our authorised version. 
And the Saviour directly used the word some 13 times. Jesus spoke about heaven. We are too earthly bound men and women. We don't like to talk about our demise. We don't like to talk about our death. But obviously the Queen had been planning for her own funeral for many years. Uh, I was listening to Dame Mary Peters and she was telling about being at a, an official dinner in Hillsborough Castle and she was sitting beside the people and uh, she asked the man beside her, well, well what, why are you here? What have you done? And he said, I am planning the Queen's funeral. And he was the planner. How long had he been at the job? Ten years. Ten years. It's good to talk about heaven. And it's good to meditate upon heaven. There is nothing that will lift the troubled mind as meditating upon the place of many mansions. The Lord knew he must leave these disciples and now it had started to dawn on the disciples what a loss it was going to be when the Saviour would be taken from them. And they were filled with, with sheer fear and apprehension. And I think many of us have been there where we know a loved one is going to be taken from us. And we wonder how are we going to survive without that loved one in our lives. And our lives, we, it is our life at that juncture is just filled with fear and thus the master he lifted their troubled hearts and he lifted their hearts away beyond where they were and he lifted their hearts into the eternal domain and encouraged them with these lovely sweet thoughts about heaven where they would eventually be reunited with him again not just for a short time but for all of God's eternity one day they would be with him where? In the Father's house of many mansions. And we can't be in no doubt that this was a place uh, that was literal and actual where they would be reunited with him. Because just further down the chapter in verse 12 we read it together. I go unto my Father. He, was, he told them he was going to leave them. He told them he was going to the Father. And it was in the Father's house. Where heaven was to be found. Bishop Ryle wrote a beautiful paragraph in this precious antidote of faith for fearful hearts. And I, I couldn't bypass it and I thought I would share it with you. What's the antidote for unbelief? It's faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus is the only sure medicine for troubled souls. To believe more thoroughly. To trust more entirely, to rest more unreservedly, to lay hold more firmly, to lean back more completely. This is the prescription of the master for troubled hearts. And it's the Lord's prescription for you and I tonight. There's a lot of troubled hearts across our land. We have been unsettled. I think the whole nation has been unsettled. But for the believing people of God, the answer is not the... To, to get embroiled and caught up in, in the, the paraphernalia and the trappings of a ceremonial funeral. The answer for the true believing soul and for the people of God is to realize behind all of the trappings there's a destiny. 
There's an eternal destiny called heaven. Our late queen, she lived all of her life in beautiful places. She lived in palaces. She lived in castles. She lived in stately homes. The best that the world had to give her. She had servants at her back and at her call. But at her death, she had to leave them all. And there's hope and encouragement in this passage for all who die in the Lord. For all who die believing. Because those who die in Christ, though they might depart from the most humble earthly abode, their soul is immediately, immediately received into the house of many mansions. And these mansions, they were fitted and they were furnished for all who believe, even for our late queen. Not wonderful to know. I just want to stop at this text tonight and I want to use it as the Lord helps me just to encourage your heart tonight in the Lord Jesus Christ by considering this wonderful description of heaven because eternity beckons to us all. One day you're not going to be on that pew. One day you're not going to be in your home. And where will you be? Because if your soul is not going to the house of many mansions, where is it going to? So let's take heed. What do we learn about heaven? Well, first of all, we learn that heaven is the eternal dwelling place of the believer. That resonated with me very much so once again. Verse 1 makes it clear that the Lord is referring to believers. Believe in God, believe also in me. Believe in God, believe also in me. In our time and looking at the creed some years ago, we were all struck by that. I, in front of an unbelieving world, this is what the professing church says. I believe in God. And here we are once again, and we are saying uh, with, with faith and with, with an affirmation, I believe in God. There, there are many who don't believe, of course, but who still expect to get to heaven. And the contrast between the believing and the unbelieving, of course, is focused right throughout the Gospel of John. Ten times over in our uh, AV translation, we have the words of Jesus, and they're translated, believe not. So we know that there are those who believe, and there are those who believe not. And maybe you're numbered amongst that uh, company tonight. You're numbered amongst the company who yet believe not. Well, let me just stop at the outset and tell you about that company. Jesus said about them, I said unto you, therefore, that ye shall die in your sins. If ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. What a dreadful prospect it is for any man or woman to die in your sins. Because if you die in your sins, where Jesus is, there you can never be. When we talk about heaven... I want you to know at the very outset that it is reserved for those who believe, who believe in Christ unto the saving of their souls. Jesus, the same Jesus who taught us in John 14 about heaven, the same Lamb of God who laid down his life for the sheep is the same individual who's telling us those who believe not 
will die in their sin and where Jesus is, there they can never be. The whole of John's Gospel is summarized from John 20, 31. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Now let me ask you tonight, do you have life through believing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the key. The life that is spoken of is eternal life. The Bible has much to say about heaven, of course, the whole revelation of scripture, because heaven, as we think of it, not just as the place of the abode of the, the, of the saints of God, those who die believing, but the, the whole universe is represented in the word of God. The whole heaven of heavens is represented in the word of God as being God's house. It's depicted figuratively as being built one story above another. Now let's just share some scriptures with you. You can write them down and uh, come back to them. Psalm 104 verse 3. It talks here about God who layeth the beams of his chambers in the waters, who maketh the clouds his chariot, who walketh upon the wings of the wind. So the, the foundation is being laid. Way even below where man can see it, the foundations are being laid. Amos 9 and 6 talks about God who buildeth his stories in the heaven. Can you get the, the picture? God building his stories in the heaven. So the foundation is laid. The stories are being added to it. At the opening of the temple in Solomon's time, it was said in Second Chronicles 6.18, Will God in very deed dwell with men on earth? Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I have built. God's habitation is not only the heavens, the great expanse that's all round about us, but the heaven of heavens. Paul talked about being caught up into the third heaven. Wherever you go, you'll find God. Psalm 139. Wherever you take your wing and fly to the othermost part of the earth, you'll find God. That is his habitation. That's where he rules. That's where he reigns. In Psalm 123, that one of those lovely psalms of degrees, we read, Unto thee lift I up mine eyes, O thou that dwellest in the heavens. God is omnipresent. Present in all, he's present in every place, in all time, in every location. He transcends it all. And he is depicted in the word of God as dwelling in heaven, the very heaven of heavens. The Savior told his disciples that he was going back to his father in heaven. And how magnificent, how majestic must heaven be? Because Solomon very wisely put it that behold heaven and the heaven of heavens. So if you could put heaven into the very heaven of heavens, it still couldn't contain God. Sometimes to localize it all, the assemblies of believers where God is worshipped is named as the house of God. And the house of God can become the very gate of heaven itself. This is reflected in Hebrews 12 verse 22-23. But ye are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels 
to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. And of course, the disciples, which would have, those early disciples, would have been devout Jewish believers. They'd have been very familiar with all of these Old Testament scriptures. And when Jesus spoke of going to his Father, they would have known the scriptures. They knew the awesomeness of which he was referring. And through saving faith, they were going to go there too. And this was something that resonated mightily with them. Though impressive, the Saviour This heaven of heavens, he described it as his father's house. And of course, your father's house is home. I just love that expression. I, I, I was married many years, and I still talked about going home. You'd thought I hadn't got a home. But when I referred to going home, I was talking about my father's house, my parental home. There can be no more beautiful description of heaven. Because the Bible speaks of it as being the eternal home of the people of God. This is where God, the great father of all who believes, dwells with his family. Some of his family are still on earth. They're still on their pilgrimage. They're still battling through the wilderness. There are uncounted numbers that we couldn't put, humanly speaking, a number of. And they're in heaven. They're gathered around the, they're gathered around the throne, as we've been reading in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, to that innumerable company. They're, they're gathered there in glory, where the spirits of just men are made perfect. And there are some who are still to be born that are part of the Father's family. And they're all going to get to heaven at the end of the journey. It's a home which is not transitory. It's a home which is eternal. In 2 Corinthians 5 and 1, the Bible says, we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved. So the tabernacle in the Bible is just the tent. We know that to be the case. So this house of ours, this body of ours, is described as just a tent in which the soul dwells. And we know that one day the tent pegs of this body are going to be lifted and it's going to be dissolved and it's going to be no more. But when that day comes, and it will come, men and women for us all, when that day comes, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. I think that's wonderful to know. The Lord Jesus, he takes the veil away. He reveals it to us. He says to the people of God, don't be troubled. Don't be worried. Though I'm going away, you're going to be reunited with me once again in that eternal home of my Father in heaven. It's a home comprised of many mansions. I, I stuck at that word. In my Father's house are many mansions. The word means simply a place to stay. It is a residence. It is an abode. It is a dwelling place. It's a very special word. It's only used once in the New Testament in another place, just down in verse 23 actually of the same chapter. It's translated there. If a man loved me, he will keep my words and my father will love him and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. The word is abode. 
We will make our mansion with him. We will stay with him. We're not to think of these mansions, of course, in a materialistic uh, manner, in magnificence and, and majesty. The mansions of glory will outshine all the fading glories of this world. I think I've told you, I'm sure I have at least two or three times, about visiting Hillsborough Castle during the summer. You don't have to go very far in Northern Ireland to go somewhere special. And we were shown around the grandeur, the opulent grandeur of Hillsborough Castle. And the young man that was our guide, he was able to go into every detail about the reception room and what this picture was and the significance of that and that. And we were all just awestruck by it because uh, we, we, we just... We're just awestruck by it. And then we went into the room where King Charles was just a few days ago and where he signed his name uh, on the, the visitor's book. We were shown round the ornate drawing room. We went into the throne room. We visited the red room. We went into all of those rooms that you, you saw uh, just a few days ago on your television screens. We then went outside and we visited the cultivated gardens, the beautiful rose garden, especially it was of interest to the Queen. And it was said that the Queen especially asked uh, when she was in Hillsborough or was in contact with Hillsborough about the rose garden, a very great favourite with her. A wonderful place. But the spiritual beauties of the mansions of glory outshine them all. Dr. John Gill, he paints a wonderful picture of mansions. They're mansions of love. There's no hate in heaven. They're mansions of peace. There's no unrest in heaven. They're mansions of joy. There's no unhappiness in heaven. They're mansions of rest because we will not have to work by the sweat of our brow again in Emmanuel's land. They are mansions of sinlessness in heaven. There is no more sin in heaven. Every day we battle with sin. Every day we battle with self. But when we get to heaven, no more battle. No more sin. It's a place of uninterrupted communion and fellowship with God. We've all been intrigued with the snippets that we've heard. For example, of those that worked at Balmoral Castle and all those other places and where the Queen would just randomly uh, turn up in and, and some of the workplaces and talk to the workers and even go out to the workers' homes and have supper with them all in a very casual and formal manner. Uh, and just those snatches of communion and uh, communication and, and uh, contact with the Queen, that will stand in their minds for all eternity. They'll never forget those times in which the Queen came to visit their homes. But in heaven, we're going to have un, uninterrupted communion with God. Uninterrupted communion. Our hearts drawn out after him. These are mansions, uh, men and women, they're not just fit for the Queen. They're fitted for all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I love this word, mansions. Uh, don't allow, when we hear, the only time I hear it, of course, when I go to other funerals, and when, when they, 
the authorised version is dispensed with and they don't use the authorised version and there's something jars when you hear it in your own mind uh, that there are just rooms up in heaven you think it's just some sort of a, a motel that was there at the side of the road and you got a room in it but we're very happy with the word mansion uh, and it does, it does depict what is given to us here and Jesus said it was a place of many mansions Multitudes have reached the heavenly shore. Multitudes, we can't number them. And, and multitudes are presently on their way. And we know from John 17, there are greater multitudes that are going to believe in his name through the witness of those that are on the way. And yet there's room. There's room in heaven for all of them because it's a place of many mansions. The believing seed of Abraham, humanly speaking, it cannot be numbered in Genesis 22:17, we read that in blessing I will bless thee and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the sea short and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. The stars in heaven, we, we know there, there are billions of them. The, the, the grains of sand along the seashore, we know there are trillions of them. They can't be numbered. That's the seed of Abraham, the believing seed of the people of God. And they're all going to be housed in the mansions of heaven. You know what that teaches me tonight? There's room for you. There's room for you. Do not allow Satan to deceive you. Do not allow sin to deceive you otherwise. There's room for you. In that place of many mansions. There's room for you. I read a wonderful illustration of Spurgeon. And he tells the story of a poor man. Who had been long burdened in spirit. He felt that he was so sinful. He couldn't enter into heaven. And one night he dreamed that he stood at the gates of heaven. And he was longing to enter in. But he couldn't enter in. For sin had shut him out. And very soon he, he saw a great company of men who were coming singing to the gate and they were in white robes. And he stepped up to one of them and he asked them, who are you? And they replied, well, we are, we are the prophets. Oh, he said, I can't enter in with you. And as he watched them enter in through the gates, he heard their welcome that they received and said. Then he saw another company come they were the noble company of martyrs oh he said I cannot go in with you and yet when they entered in he heard shouts ascending of glory and of triumph and then a third company came and it was the the, the great band of the apostles and the confessors of the faith and the mighty preachers of a bygone age and he said alas I can't go in because I'm not a preacher and I'm not an apostle and I've never done anything for the Lord. And his heart was ready to break. And yet he saw coming up the way an even greater company. They were led by Saul of Tarsus. They were led by the dying thief. And he asked them, who are you? Oh, they said... We're the sinners which no man can number. Saved by blood. By the rich, free, sovereign grace of God. Indeed, all who entered in before us have the same testimony. 
But that's who we are. And this poor man, he said in his heart and in his mind, well, I can go in with you. Because thank God I'm just a sinner like you. And I trust in the merits of him who died on Calvary's cross. That's the only company that will get into heaven. Will you join that company tonight? Will you acknowledge your sinnership before Almighty God? Confess your need before the Lord? You're the one that will get into heaven. This idea of mansions remind us, as Jonathan Edwards taught us, that there, there are various places of dignity and, and different degrees and circumstances of honour and happiness in heaven. But when you go to all of those wonderful royal palaces, you will know that they're divided all up into different apartments. And so you will have the, the king's apartment, the queen's apartment, and you will have the, the apartments of their family adjacent to them or in other parts of the palace. You will have the attendants. You will have the guard. The palace is a, a huge place and people are housed all over that palace, all depending on their rank, all depending on their job, all depending on their position. In heaven there's going to be rewards. And there's some people that are going to get Mansions close to the kings. But I'll tell you this for sure. Every part of heaven will be a mansion compared with where we're leaving. Not only fitted for the queen. And I am sure she has her mansion in heaven. But for every sinner who by faith has trusted in Christ for salvation. We'll look on down this text and I know I've used up all the time on the first point but it's just such a text. I want to finish it tonight so bear with me and I'll just be very brief. Heaven, secondly, it's perfectly furnished and finished. All the furnishings of the royal palaces and you're not allowed to sit on them. You're not allowed to touch them because they're hundreds of years of age and if you go into a place and you can't sit down something, that's only for the royal family to sit on. You can't sit on them. But every part of heaven is perfectly furnished and it's all for the use of the people of God. You and I will have usage of it all. The Bible tells us what will not be there. Go over please to Revelation chapter 21 verse 4. We always know a place by what we don't see as as much by what we do see. And in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 4, we read in heaven that God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away. It's planned. It's furnished. And there's no death in it. There's no tears in it. You cannot live anywhere in this world without death and the consequences of sin and of the curse. And it doesn't matter how loving your family is, death one day will visit it. And it will bring grief and sorrow. In heaven there's no funerals. The undertaker's banished. And there's no tears in glory. It's furnished because there's no pain in heaven. There, there are many Christians and they suffer real agonizing pain. 
and even emotional distress and they battle with well ill health for years and some people say oh if you're a believer you shouldn't be sick and you shouldn't have pain I, I don't know what bible they read I don't know what world they live in but there's no more battles in glory but what do we know will be there well we thought of some of those things this morning in Revelation 19 but go just way, go with me to Revelation chapter 7 Revelation chapter 7 you can study it at home verse 14 to 17 let me summarize it well the, the, the glorified will be there and they will be dressed in those white clean linen robes that we thought about today that have been washed and made clean in the blood of the Lamb there's no gaudiness in heaven no gaudiness just simplicity. There's plenty of food in heaven. I don't know what the glorified eat in their resurrected bodies. I don't know what that will be. But I know there will be plenty because there's no more hunger. And there's no more thirst. And there's service in heaven. Some people think when they die and go to heaven, they're going to do nothing for all eternity. We were never designed or created to do nothing. We were created to serve the creator. And in heaven we're going to serve and our service, is only the, our service here is only the beginning because in heaven the Bible tells us they serve God day and night in his temple. When Jesus said he was going to prepare a place, what did he mean by that? Well, he was going to do something that would furnish and perfect the place. The figure is taken from someone who's gone on a journey uh, and who goes before his companions to provide the place to lodge in and to stay in and to make all the necess necessary preparations. And Jesus went before the disciples. <clears throat> he went to the cross. He went to the tomb. And he ascended up to glory. And by going to the cross and going into the tomb and ascending up to glory he prepared and is preparing a dwelling place there for us and it's perfect and I want you to notice as we close how it's all promised and pledged to us he said I'm going to come again go back to John 14 I'm going to come again and he is coming again I believe we're near the midnight hour the cry will go up, go ye out to meet him. <clears throat> when the Lord Jesus spoke in John 14 of coming again, there's various nuances that are written into uh, the, the verses. In verse 18, he told the disciples, I will not leave you comfortless. The, the, the margin translation is, I'll not leave you like orphans. I will come to you. Now he told them he's going away, but he said, I'm going to come to you. And what he meant by that was, he was going to send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit would come and minister to them. They, they were not orphans. Do, believer, don't act this week as if you're an orphan. That you don't have a heavenly father. You have a heavenly father who cares for you. Every day, every moment of every day, he cares for you. We're not orphans. We're not left on our own. He sends his spirit. In verse 23, we're promised that God dwells continually with his people. In verse 28, we learn that from heaven he's coming back again. One day he's coming back again. There are many Christians and 
They fall out about how he's coming. They seem to come to agree on the actual fact that he is coming. He's coming back again. And there's a day coming for us. And it's going to be either at his second coming. Are we the last generation that will live on this earth before the Lord comes back? I don't know. We could be. Or it's going to be in the valley of the shadow of death. He's going to come to us. And he's going to call us. And he's going to take us home. When Christ returns for us, we're going to be with him for all eternity. With him. That's, that's what makes all the difference. With him in glory for all eternity. And we're going to be with the ones that have passed on before. Will we know one another in heaven? Yes, I believe we'll know one another in heaven. There are unnumbered hosts who have already arrived there. But there's family there. And we'll know them. I love that passage in Mark 9. I've often referred you to it. The Mount of Transfiguration. How did Peter, James and John know Moses and Elijah? They didn't know them. But there was recognition. And there will be recognition and glory. We'll not just know our own family. We'll know all. We'll know all. Those that have passed on before. We'll not be on our own in glory. We'll know all the multitudes that have gone on before us. The Reverend Gordon Cook used to sing, I remember him as a young man singing <clears throat> these words, Over the river faces I see, Fair is the morning looking for me, Free from their sorrow, grief and despair, Waiting and watching patiently there. That's his promise. One day we're going to be with him. And on that day we're going to be with the ones that have passed on before. All of those loved ones who have passed on before. To those who know not Christ as their saviour. I cannot promise you a mansion at the end of life's journey. And if in eternity you don't have a mansion, what do you have? Well, the Bible teaches the only thing you are left with is an eternal abode. With the devil and with his demons and with the doomed of hell. Well, I, I cannot think of a greater place of condemnation than for anyone to die who has sat on a gospel pew or have been brought up in a Bible believing church and has gone out into eternity with the gospel ringing in their ears, able to say the catechism but not knowing Christ. And oh, think on it, men and women. Here you had a place in church amongst the redeemed of God. Here you had a seat in gospel pews. But in death, you will sink into damnation. Into that pit that is bottomless. But there's a way of escape. Because Jesus promised heaven and the mansions in glory to those who would believe. And the Spirit of God invites you tonight just simply to come and believe on his name to the saving of your soul. And if you come and believe and receive that precious word this evening of salvation, 
the promises to you. And to as many as the Lord our God shall come, shall call. And to those that believe in his name. Heaven. Isn't it the antidote to all the troubles of this life that we live in? To all of the battles of this life. And I pray the Lord will bless it to us as with meditation.